0: A lot of activity at the Supreme Court on this Monday, oral arguments in two major cases, and the court rejected a Trump administration appeal aimed at ending deportation protections for young undocumented immigrants. Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr was there for it, of course, and joins me now. So, Greg, the justices turned down the administration's request to appeal the ruling that has kept the DACA program in place. Tell us more.
1: So this was a really unusual maneuver, June. They were asking, the, the administration was asking the Supreme Court to take up this appeal, even though the appeals court hadn't had a chance to hear it first. It's something the Supreme Court uh, really uh, it very rarely does. It was, uh, in some ways, uh, it was definitely a, a long-shot appeal by the, the administration. And without any published dissent, the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to hear it now. We're not saying you can't appeal at a later point, but, but we're staying out of it for now.
0: And in a statement, the White House said, we look forward to having this case expeditiously heard by this appeals court. And if necessary, the Supreme Court will fully expect to prevail. So I assume that they're going uh, on to the Ninth Circuit, would it be?
1: That's right. So this case will go to the Ninth Circuit. There is another case that is very, very similar. A district judge has issued a similar ruling in New York, and that one will go up to the Second Circuit. Uh, so we're going to have a multi-front battle here. Uh, it could ultimately get back up to the Supreme Court. On the other hand, we could see uh, action by Congress that would make this entire legal, legal fight moot.
0: So this was a day that, at an argument today that unions were dreading. The Supreme Court considered an issue about mandatory union fees that it's considered before. What was the highlight of the oral arguments, or how would you describe them?
1: Well, they were very contentious among uh, seven of the nine justices, and along uh, the lines you would expect, uh, the more liberal justices, uh, Ginsburg, Breyer, Kagan, Soto and we're all highly skeptical of the idea that you could have, uh, that there was a free speech right to object to these mandatory uh, fees that pay for the cost of collective bargaining. And uh, the, the more conservative justices uh, seem to be much more supportive. That's what we expected. The two justices we didn't hear from, Clarence Thomas, who, who never speaks at arguments, and crucially, Neil Gorsuch, who we know is going to cast the deciding vote in this case, because when the court took up this issue two years ago, and Justice Scalia. Leah died and left a vacancy. The other eight justices split four to four. And that means that Justice Gorsuch, who has since joined the court, uh, will be the one to cast the deciding vote. The expectation is he will uh, side with uh, the free speech objection and say mandatory union fees are unconstitutional. But he didn't say a word during the argument today.
0: So, Greg, is that pretty unusual for him? I mean, I know there have been times that he hasn't asked questions, but he's normally pretty uh, active,
1: Loquacious. Yes, he is very he he is very active. Sometimes extremely active. There have been uh, at least one or two other cases where he didn't ask any questions. Uh, So yes, it is unusual. You know, it may have. uh, You know, this is certainly a case where he doesn't have to try to convince anybody uh, in the courtroom, and maybe that's one reason he decided not to say anything. Uh, The other members members of the court uh, seem to have made up their minds. So uh, there might not have been a reason for him to. Uh, to speak, or that might be one fewer reason for him to speak. Uh, he did apparently have a lot to say in the in the uh, argument afterwards. I wasn't there for it, but I understand. Mm-hmm. In, in the antitrust case involving America Express, uh, he had a ton of questions. So it's not like he's he's forgotten how to ask. It's
0: uh, it's 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 a it's very unusual. I don't know how, what how what to read into it actually either. But so let's talk a little bit. Is this the exact same issue that was before the Supreme Court when they tied four four?
1: It, 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 is, it is basically the exact same issue. It's a, it's a somewhat different context. That that case involved uh, a California teacher's ruling. This case involves a, uh, a, a Illinois and a child support specialist and the union uh, that represents him in negotiations. But it is essentially the same argument, which is that uh, people objecting to these fees say, when a union is negotiating a contract they are ta- they are uh discussing matters of public concern and i disagree with the union and therefore i have a free speech right not to have to pay money uh to 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 help the union out there the argument on the other side is that um there is this governmental interest in having what people call labor peace in having a uh, a well organized and, and, and uh, coherent and uh uh peaceful process of, of reaching an agreement with the union. And when you let people opt out, you you threaten to undercut that entire process.
0: So we've talked about the Abood case before. Would the Supreme Court have to directly overrule that case, or they, is there ways to get around it? They, they are being
1: directly directly asked to do that. That's the 1977 ruling that, that said that it is constitutional to require workers to pay these fees. But um, in the earlier case from a couple of years ago, two years ago, uh, there was kind of another an off ramp for the court where they might have uh, said something uh, about just giving workers a more clear right to opt out of paying those fees or to require them to opt in in order, in order before they are billed for these fees. Uh, that particular off ramp is not available. Uh, for the court in this case, nobody has suggested it, so it's a pretty direct attack on, on the Abood ruling.
0: So we only have a, a minute here. So how do the conservative justices justify overturning precedent?
1: Well, they, well essentially, uh, there, there are a number of reasons, but part of it is that they say the argument today was that that precedent is out of step, both with rulings before it, it came out and with rulings after, uh, and that uh, it, it was incorrectly decided. And uh, that that worker free free speech rights should should be uh, vindicated in this case.
0: Well, maybe the court will surprise us. Everyone, everyone, the union side and and uh, the the employment side, everyone and including you, I'm sure, think that this is going to go uh, the way of against unions. But you never know, Greg. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to have you on. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Stork. In the saga of the dueling memos, on Saturday, a House panel released a lengthy, extensively redacted Democratic response to the Republican memo that alleged bias and misconduct by the FBI and Justice Department early in their investigation of Russian election interference. The White House signed off on the release of the memo following negotiations between the FBI and the committee's top Democrat, Adam Schiff, over what should be redacted in the document. On CNN's State of the Union Friday, Schiff said the FBI gave all the necessary political context to the FISA court, but followed FBI practice. It's ironic that the Republicans would attack the FBI for following their procedures, which require that they minimize the names of U.S. persons and U.S. entities that are not the subject of a warrant. So even Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are referred to as Candidate 1 and Candidate 2. They're supposed to mask the identities of people. Trump took to Twitter and called the memo a total political and legal bust. Joining me is William Banks, professor at Syracuse University Law School. Bill, we'll look at the individual claims in a moment, but taking the Democratic memo as a whole, how well does it rebut Republican claims about FBI bias in the FISA process?
2: I think it rebuts the claims uh, pretty effectively. The, the two parts really. One is the part that Representative Schiff just reviewed. That is that the, the failure to identify Steele or his backers was simply the FBI following rules that are always applied in the FISA process. It's called minimization. Uh, it's, it's ironically a, a controversy that Representative Nunes brought up himself. Uh, about unmasking. So uh, the the masking was highly appropriate here. And, of course, the context of the memo uh, reveals that the the FISA court judges could certainly have told that there was a political uh, um, operative that was behind the, the so-called dossier. Second thing is that on the facts it shows that indeed uh, they knew about Gates and his activities well before the dossier was ever uh, prepared, or at least uh, in the hands of the FBI. And then, of course, Gates had been the subject of FBI interest since at least 2013.
0: Carter Page? Yes. Okay. Um, So the Democratic memo suggests the FBI had independent reasons for investigating Carter Page, but they were redacted from the memo, weren't they?
2: Many of them were because again of the intelligence sources and methods that would be revealed here. You know, we have to back up and remember that the Nunes Memo itself was an extraordinary breach of the usual protocol of the, not usual, but of the unanimously followed protocol in FISA instances, which is that we do not see the surveillance application. We see pieces of it now uh, because of the Nunes Memo and then the democratic response had to uh, act in kind, we shouldn't have ever seen any of this. And and that's the underlying point here. And because of the gravity of the threat to intelligence sources and methods, we're certainly not gonna learn the missing pieces of information that now we'd all like to have.
0: So one of the questions was the role of Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. He approved at least one of the FBI's applications to extend the surveillance of Carter Page. What did you learn from the Democratic memo?
2: Well, we learned that, again, uh, Rosenstein, like his predecessor, had multiple sources of information upon which to rely in deciding whether or not to approve an application And as we've discussed before, June, on the program, when FISA applications are made, they go through an extensive set of uh, vetting inside the Department of Justice before the Deputy Attorney General finally signs off. So Rosenstein wouldn't have signed off on the basis of the Steele dossier. He would have signed off on the basis of a complete set of materials that would have built a probable cause case that he thought they could reputably make before the FISA court.
0: Bill, let me ask you, this... Came out. It's been. It seems like longer than it has been since the since the Republican uh, memo came out. It's been quite a while, and it's almost out of the immediate consciousness of the public. Certainly out of the immediate news cycle. Is it wise to bring this up again to resurrect all the questions again and have people looking at this again for the Democrats? I, I don't.
2: Mean. Right. No. I think they they more or less had to respond because the uh, the Nunes memo. Uh, cast the Democrats in a very poor light and cast the FISA court and the Department of Justice with Rosenstein leading the charge as partisan in their motives. I think the memo, uh, the Schiff memo clearly shows that that was not the case. Now we should all forget about all of this because both memos absolutely (laughs) add nothing to our knowledge of the underlying question, which is Russian involvement in our elections, and then secondarily whether the Trump administration had something to do with it.
0: So this was part of the attack on the FBI, but since then the FBI has come under attack again because of the tip it received in January from someone close to the Florida shooter and some other information it received that it didn't follow up. So how much does this do to resurrect the opinion of the FBI for many people who have been disappointed with the organization.
2: Yeah, the Florida incident is, of course, horrific and uh, deserves careful scrutiny. I think that these two memos should be quickly put in the, uh, in the so-called recycle bin and, and never thought of again because they, they add nothing to our knowledge about the underlying questions, and I don't think they reflect poorly on the FBI. And I think the two memos read together, you know, the, the, <clears throat> the Democratic memo rebuts the Republicans on the facts, and indeed the Republican response to the Shift memo over the weekend was not to quibble with them on their interpretation of the facts, but simply to make allegations again about partisan leanings uh, as the facts are read the FBI was balanced in making its request to the FISA court, as they always have been.
0: And how many people do you think actually read one or both of these memos?
2: A few of us uh, legal academics and some <laughs> other political operatives and journalists in Washington. I hope not too many. Because, because the shift memo, evident.
0: the shift memo was <clears throat> long and, and pretty detailed.
2: It was. It's 10 pages with a lot of redactions and I think they were forced to go to that length to clearly uh, respond to the factual uh, allegations inside the Nunes Memo.
0: So, well, Perhaps this will be—it'll uh, be a long time before we hear about another FISA application. Thanks so much, Bill. As always, that's William Banks. He's a professor at Syracuse University Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com/podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.